Before we get started, I have an exciting announcement to make. The Progressive Bitcoiner podcast has grown quite a bit since our first episode only a few months ago, and that growth is entirely due to your support and encouragement. But I am grateful that it is now not only listeners that want to support the show. So I'm excited to announce our first sponsorship, SunExchange. SunExchange is a simple way for you to earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact on the planet. Thousands of people from more than 180 countries across the world already use SunExchange to solar power more than 60 businesses and organizations across Southern Africa. These solar projects have avoided more than 12,000 metric tons of carbon emissions from going into the atmosphere. And it's super easy. Just visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner, sign up in a matter of minutes, and then browse current solar project crowd sales to find the one that inspires you. Projects include schools, farms, businesses, and other organizations in these sunny emerging markets. So for about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can buy solar cells in the project and start generating clean energy. You'll receive monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years for the clean energy your solar cells produce. And the organizations use solar power gain access to affordable and reliable clean energy. Luckily for you, Progressive Bitcoin listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase at sunexchange.com backslash Progressive Bitcoiner. It was a very bad situation and one group was going to benefit over the other. And I think for us, what we're doing, the Bitcoin mining will allow us to clean the lake and give back to the people that are there, a natural resource that is there. And the way I like to describe it is, you know, three to 400 years ago, the Spanish came in, took gold from the region, conquered the land and shipped it all back to Spain. And if we think about Bitcoin as digital gold, then I don't want the same thing to happen. I, I want the digital gold, the Bitcoin to stay within the community so that the community and the, the indigenous people can benefit from it and elevate their lifestyle and um, have economic opportunity that they've never had. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Dr. Patrick Melder, founder of the Bitcoin Lake Project in Guatemala. Bitcoin Lake seeks to replicate the circular economy at Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador, but with an increasing emphasis on how Bitcoin mining could provide new means for waste management in the area. I really enjoyed this conversation with Patrick. It was quite cathartic to speak with another physician about our experiences in medicine and in Bitcoin. I hope you enjoy it too. So thank you for tuning in. Here we go. Dr. Melder, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm happy to have you. Mark, thanks so much. Uh, we've been kind of following each other for a while, and I'm just super excited to get to know you and see you personally. And I love what you're doing. I love your podcast. I love the audience that you're addressing. I think you're doing a great, great work for and a great service for the Bitcoin community. Thanks for doing that. Those words mean a lot. Thank you for, for saying them. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think that just speaking personally, you know, um, I think the last word people would use to describe me as progressive. <laughs> but I think that, and unfortunately, they're not, I don't think there are enough progressive voices in Bitcoin. And I think that Bitcoin provides a unifying force that allows progressives and conservatives or however you want to label, whatever the label is, I think Bitcoin actually provides a unifying force that aligns us in so many levels. Um, I'm just super excited about what um, this does for us as Americans and just the way we think. So, and that's why I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. You know, ultimately it is about doing good and that's how I'm going to define uh, progressivism for myself. And so that's most certainly what you are doing, and I'm and I'm delighted to have you here to talk more about it. You have your own podcast, as it turns out, and you've made your rounds uh, a little bit on, on other podcasts. But I think it would be helpful for my audience to know about your your background and and your Bitcoin journey. Yeah, great. So I'm a I'm a surgeon by training, ear, nose, and throat surgeon by training. I'm a little bit older than you, so I'm I'm 54, and I did my uh, training in the Army at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Uh, which was and still is the premier medical center for um, 
any really any specialty, whether you're a surgeon or a, or a um, internist like you or a hospitalist like you. Um, so had the pleasure of being trained at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, practiced in the military for um, seven years after my training. So I completed my training in 99 and got out of the army in 2006 during the middle of the um, Iraq um, war and went on to private practice. So essentially practiced either as a, a military army doctor, surgeon for, or a private surgeon for 20 plus years. And then one, one of the reasons I got out of uh, military, out of military practice and out of the military in particular was I have an entrepreneurial bent. And when I got out in 2006, I started my first company, which was a medical device company. I invented a endoscopic camera and you know, it was really novel at the time, well ahead of our, our years. And we were talking about cloud development and, and cloud storage of, of images well before anybody was thinking about that. Uh, but the financial crisis happened and that really kind of put the death knell in my first company. And that also led to kind of further financial issues as it related to me per personally, because I took out a mortgage on my first home to start my first company. And the financial crisis did not um, didn't treat me well, and so um, after I got out of the military, I moved down here to Georgia, practiced in a large multi-specialty group at Wellstar uh, uh, Medical Center, which is um, one of the largest integrated healthcare systems in the country. I think the largest, uh, third largest in the country, and and did that for a while. Were you general ENT or head and neck? Uh, general ENT. And so as uh, Mark is stating, when he mentions head and neck, so that's a specialty of, of taking, you know, cancers out of people's um, head and neck region, primarily related to smoking and drinking and, and thyroid cancer. So I was uh, primarily a general ENT, but I started specializing in sleep and snoring. Um, so I did a towards the end of my practice, I, I would say about 70 to 80% of my practice was uh, sleep and sleep apnea and snoring related. And I was, a, I was an expert in the field, um, had a very uh, good practice, but the, the practice of medicine, especially in a group specialty practice setting, it was just not enjoyable for me anymore. Uh, I love taking care of patients. I love the surgical aspects of it, but the business of medicine, and, and I know you experience this on a day-to-day -day basis, but the business of medicine is just, it just burned me out. Can I ask you a little bit more about that? You know, I, yeah. I think it's a fairly common sentiment among uh, physicians and surgeons, but I think I, I expressed to you um, a while back that I wanted to be an ENT surgeon. I, I did a otolaryngology rotation at the NIH, so not too far away from you, and, and I loved it. But what it came down to is I could not commit to the life of being a, a surgeon with, um, for various reasons. But here you are having done that and you left. I can't imagine that that choice was an easy one. Can you tell us a little bit more how you struggled with it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for those of you who don't know how medical training works, you know, most people think that we just become doctors, you know, and it's easy peasy. It doesn't work like that. So, you know, we finish our college education, we go to medical school and Early on in medical school, I had come across uh, otolaryngology, ENT, ear, nose, and throat uh, surgery, and I loved it. I, I, so this is the early 90s. And what I loved about my specialty is that um, it wasn't demographic specific. So I could take care of a new, newborn baby or I could take care of a 90-year-old. It wasn't focused specifically on gender. I could take care of male and female. And the complexity of the area that I was taking care of in the, in the head and neck, um, the complexity of the anatomy, the closeness of everything. I mean, you, you really have to understand the intricacies and how things uh, work to work in that area effectively. And it just fascinated me. So those are the things that drew me to it. The other thing that I, that I love about my specialty, and I, I thought this as a medical student, which was really unusual, I thought to myself, okay, if I'm 55, which you know I am now, uh, do I want to be waking up in the middle of the night taking care of a drunk patient that's been involved in a motor vehicle accident and is 
vomiting on me and cursing at me, um, even though I'm trying to do the, do the best I can to take care of them? And the answer was no. So for me, I decided early on that I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, I didn't want to be in a medical profession. I wanted to be in a surgical profession. But when I started thinking about what type of surgery I wanted to do, um, I wanted to be able to tailor my lifestyle. And ear, nose, and throat allowed me that as I progressed in my career, if I didn't want to do the more complex, long surgeries, then I could do more of what we call the bread and butter, taking tonsils out and and putting tubes in children's ears. And the other aspects of, of ENT that really intrigued, intrigued me was the fact that ear, nose, and throat affords the uh, surgeon the ability to have almost a primary care practice where I'll take care of patients for years that have issues with chronic sinusitis. And I take care of them. I take care of their children. So sometimes I'm taking care of three generations of patients um, because of medical issues that most surgeons um, don't have the, the um, ability to do. So you can really develop that, that uh, relationship with, with patients. And I love that. So the fact that I love to take care of patients, the fact that I could tailor my lifestyle is really what attracted me to otolaryngology to begin with. But then uh, when I completed my training and even before that in the early nineties, I started seeing a shift in physician sentiment that physicians were wanting to spend more time doing the things that they wanted to do. You know, they didn't want to spend all their time in the hospital. They didn't want to spend all their time in practice, but I was caught in the flux and, you know, HMOs and, and managed care was starting to take hold as well. So the, the generation before me did extremely well in medicine, almost like in Bitcoin circles, we could think of, you know, the boomers, and those who benefited from the fiat system, which ultimately it was, they, they've benefited extremely well from the systems that were in place. But then when I started my training and completed my training, the systems that were in place that kind of um, benefited physicians were going away. We started becoming more technicians. And so, and employed, when I finished my training, 80% of physicians were self-employed or in a, in a small group practice. And now, as, as you know, um, and you're, you kind of exemplify this, uh, 80% of physicians and more are employed by large hospital systems and, and healthcare systems. And so because of that, you remove a lot of autonomy. And I think that arguments can be made that hospitalist, um, as, as what you do, is very good for healthcare because you've got somebody in the hospital 24 hours a day. You don't have a gap in care that we used to have when the, when the internist or the hospitalist uh, left and uh, left duty, then really there's nobody to take care of the patient except for a call in the middle of the night. So in some respects, uh, hospital medicine has done a lot of good, but in the surgical specialties, we can't do shifts. So I'll be on call. Uh, I'll go to, I'll go to my practice, my clinic from 8.30 to 5.30 or whenever the patients are done, 6.37, whatever. And then if I've got a patient in the hospital, I can't rely on a, a medical specialist to take care of them. I, the only person that can take care of that patient is me. So I've got the burden of taking care of the patients during the day. I've got the burden of taking care of my patients at night in the hospital. And then I've got the burden of, of taking care of emergency room calls. So, And then with that, uh, decreasing pay. So most of us would be willing to accept those responsibilities if we're doing well financially. but as the administration of medicine and the administrator started infiltrating medicine, our pay started going down. And so there's a, there's a risk benefit, you know, cost benefit of what I'm doing uh, and lifestyle. It, it just, I got into complete burnout mode of, I mean, I literally was a zombie walking into my clinic every day, dreading taking care of patients and, you know, I just felt for myself, if I was the patient and I didn't have a surgeon on the other side that was enthusiastic about taking care of me, I'm not sure that I would want to be that patient. So I just had to make a decision as to whether or not this is what I wanted to continue to do. And um, on top of that, I was having some inner practice issues with my partners. We had a big generational gap between the older partners and the younger partners, millennial partners that just didn't want to take up the slack. No, no disrespect. That, that's just the way it was. 
And um, I wanted to start dialing back the amount of call that I had. And the, the younger millennial uh, surgeons didn't want to take up the calls. So it just, um, it came to a head. And quite frankly, Mark, it, it uh, led to burnout. And I got into a major depressive, I was in major depression and had, you know, I live here in the South and I have guns and had to, I, I physically had to lock them up. I knew that if I, if I left these guns unlocked, that um, I probably was going to do something bad to myself. So I had to walk away. I just, I just couldn't do it. I just could not survive in that environment anymore. Um, I mean, just talking about it just brings back, you know, really sad memories, but the Bitcoin journey kind of began kind of as that was going on. So I first was introduced we all, I think we all as Bitcoiners have introductions to Bitcoin that we regret not taking at the first glance. So my first introduction to Bitcoin was in 2013 and dismissed it because I was a busy surgeon. I was a busy entrepreneur because I started a second company. And then, and that, that also led to this pressure cooker that I was in. And so I had this busy surgical practice with call duties and then on top of that, I was I was running a company on the side, um, so just very very intense pressure. But I first bought Bitcoin in 2018. I immediately understood the the fundamental benefits to Bitcoin as as it related to property rights, immutable property rights. But I didn't really understand all the other implications behind Bitcoin until I retired from medicine. Fortuitously for me. Um, I had to take some medical leave because of the depression right as the pandemic was was starting. Literally, I was on a plane to see my brother in Dallas and, you know, the, the country is going into lockdown. And um, I was able to really go down deep down the rabbit hole with Bitcoin and developed a passion for what it could do for humanity, uh, not only as the money, but what it could do for humanity. And that's that's how I became a Bitcoin maximalist. And that's uh yeah, so that's that. That was a long answer, Mark. Sorry, I kind of talked for a long time, but that's that's kind of the, the whole story. And then, you know, I'll, I'll segue into Guatemala and all that. But that's that's kind of the whole story. Well, thank you so much for your your candor and and honesty and sharing about your journey. I can assure you, you're not alone. And I think probably around the same time frame, I too had some of those same severe sentiments that uh, you were expressing. And Bitcoin has certainly helped. Um, looking at other ventures, pursuing other ventures uh, is my hope as well. And so I think that's what this is all about. And so again, thank you for sharing. I know that's that's not easy. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. So you, have, you and your family have been going down to Guatemala for I think over six years now. How did you end up in Guatemala specifically? Well, um, so for, for many of your listeners, um, just so they know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian by faith, and um, that kind of provides the framework or the worldview of everything that I think in. So in 2012, uh, 2011, late 2011, we were attending church, and we had a, and for those who don't know, the, the South is a very ch uh, churchy culture, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. But anyway, we were, we were attending church. <laughs> we were attending church and we had a couple that um, were actually sent from our church down to Guatemala to do some work with orphans. And we, they got up on stage and they kind of described what they were doing. And uh, my wife went up to Angel, uh, who was the wife of the other uh, missionary and um, I didn't know this at the time, but she went up and kind of expressed, you know, she was very interested in what they were doing and wanted to come down and, and visit and see what they were, what they were up to. And Angel um, said in, in retrospect, many years, a couple of years later, that when they've described what they, what they were doing in a lot of churches, a lot of times people come up with good intentions, but they ne never hear from them again. Well, uh, we followed up because we wanted to go down and she was really surprised by that. And so the following summer, uh, the summer of 2012, we, I took my girls down there, uh, my family, my, my wife and girls, and we did basically an art camp. And it was such a huge success that we ended up doing that every year. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do that is because of my faith and because of my involvement in church. Um, when I completed my surgical training, in um, 
99, I went to India on a three-week mission trip with uh, an organization called uh, Youth for Christ. And I spent three weeks in India, and I later became what is called a lay missions pastor. So it wasn't a professional missions pastor. I wasn't paid. I was just a lay person and leading a missions team at a small Bible church there in Maryland where we lived. And so over the years, I spent, I've, I've been on many missions trips. I've, I've sent many teams out over the world uh, to be involved in Christian missions. And I wanted to instill that in my girls. So I had to pull away from that as my girls started getting a little bit older to, to obviously be present and, and be with them as they were growing. But it, a, a time came where we wanted to instill those same sort of values and so this afforded us to do a family trip down to Guatemala. And all of my girls are two, two, my two oldest now, which are 26 and 24, they're professional artists now. My youngest one has um, artistic um, attributes. So we loved it. And my wife is an artist. So when we went down there, I was just, you know, I'm the dumb surgeon just playing support for these artists. <laughs> you know, I just, I just, I'm the, I'm the muscle. I just do what they tell me to do, but they loved it. And it was a great support to the the school down there, Centro Educativo Josue, uh, which is a school that we're now reaffiliated with for the um, Bitcoin Lake. And so we did that from 2012 to 2018. And then when I was going down my Bitcoin rabbit hole and wanted to do a circular Bitcoin economy modeled on Bitcoin Beach. We reached out again to Nancy at the school and reconnected. And, you know, one thing led to another. Nancy was very interested in bringing this new tech technology down to Guatemala. And that's how Bitcoin Lake started. So I think it, you've also described not only wanting to do this, but doing it in a manner that's sustainable. Absolutely. And I think you might have alluded to uh, what Paul Farmer uh, would call uh, uh, medical tourism, where you you, you fly into a, a situation, a country, and you provide care uh, or some service for a week or two, and then you're gone. And there's some component of dependency there. There's some degree of, again, as in tourism, it makes you feel good, but are you inevitably doing more harm than good. And I, I get the sense that you had a similar sentiment when when you decided that you launched uh, Bitcoin Lake. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So I think that, I think whenever any person, any human, and forgive me for my incorrect pronunciation of the word, but I pronounce H's differently than most everybody else. But anyway, um, Whenever any person provides comfort to another person, that's a that's a beautiful thing, and that's that's what humanity is all about. So, but I think something that's missing a lot of times, especially in Christian missions, is that we go, uh, we build a church, we dig a water well, and then we leave. And yes, we've done a good work. The people that have gone on the trip have been touched, and they potentially, like us, want to do it again in the future. But the people that we've left sometimes don't have the lasting impact that we want. And the lasting impact that we always want to give is financial gifts. Because, and I've said this many, many times, you can go anywhere in the world and poverty looks the same no matter where you go. And whenever you go anywhere in the world and you see poor people, you want to give to them, uh, not because you feel sorry for them, but because they need it. But there's... It's, it's hard to do that without creating dependency. And that dependency, financial dependence can be worse than the good that you're trying to do to begin with. So for me, Bitcoin was a way to go and do good. We can go and build our water wells. We can build, you know, dig our water wells and build churches and, and build clinics but if we could bring a tool like Bitcoin and provide financial freedom without dependence, that that's like the holy grail of Christian mission work. And I think the holy grail of not even Christian mission work, but I think that's the holy grail of humanitarianism. Um, I think it's a great it's a great tool. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about it in that manner before. Uh, that's very insightful that it's the financial independence that it offers people in this situation is a component to Bitcoin uh, and its use that I hadn't really considered before. That's, that's very profound. 
Well, I can tell you that, Mark, whether whether you go on a Christian mission or you're part of the Peace Corps or you're just a Westerner that's going to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and doing a good work, I guarantee you that many, many people are solicited by their the people that they went, they, you know, you want to go, you develop a relationship, you exchange information. And I've had it happen to me on Christian missions. And I know people have had it happen on just humanitarian missions where the person that you've developed a relationship contacts you afterwards and saying, Hey, you know, I have a need. Would you mind help? And it, there's nothing malicious in it. There's nothing malicious in it at all, but um, it's, it's, it's little innocent connections like that that can create a dependent situation. And then the time you have to say no, you feel tremendous guilt. And Bitcoin allows you to say, okay, yes, I can help you. And this is the way we're gonna help you. We're gonna give you the tools to um, help yourself. And it's a beautiful thing. And I, I, and I have a story about that with the indigenous people that I met with on my last trip, yeah. Exactly. That's what it made me think of as well. So please, why don't you touch on that when you met with the indigenous leaders um, in the in the public library? Yeah. So it's really complex, but I'll just I'll just kind of boil it down to the fact that I I felt it uh, very important to make sure that we met with the indigenous leaders in Panachel. Panachel on Lake Atitlan is about three hours west of Guatemala City. It's in the Western, what are called the Western Highlands of, of Guatemala. It's an area that, uh, it's not self-rule, that's, that's the wrong term, but the, because of the history of Guatemala, the Civil War, the 40-year Civil War there, the indigenous people are very leery of the centralized government, and they, they take matters into their own hand a lot of times. And a lot of times people come into that area and want to do quote unquote good for them, but they're just really trying to exploit them. So I really wanted to meet with them, describe what we're doing and tell them that um, ultimately what we're doing is, will benefit them because I feel strongly about providing a universal basic income through our work down there. And I, I'd love to talk about that a little bit more. And um, I wanted to make sure that they didn't, approach me or think of me as some white gringo coming in to take advantage of them. And that's such a hard thing to communicate because that's what's been done for centuries. And that's a work in progress, but it's so essential to um, the work that we're doing down there. And they asked you what you were promising. That's right. And I was kind of taken aback by that. And, and um, I, I kind of had to think about it a little bit. And I said, I'm not promising you anything because that's what happens. A lot of people come in there, they promise you know, I'll give you this if you give me this quid pro uh, a quid pro quo. So I said basically, I, I'm not promising you anything. I'm I'm here to give you the tools that you need um, to fix you know what's wrong. And I think it, the question took me back, and I think the answer took them back. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. So when you had the idea for Bitcoin Lake, what did you en- envision? I I know you based it off of uh, Bitcoin Beach to a certain degree, but what was your hope over those uh, over the first six months? And then that'll bring us to kind of where you're at now. My vision um, has aligned with where we are now. My vision was to create a Bitcoin circular economy like Bitcoin Beach. Um, I knew that I was kind of behind the eight ball because one of the benefits of, of Bitcoin Beach and their program is they had a they had an endowment. Someone gave them Bitcoin to kind of start the program. And for us, it was complete bootstrap. Um, all, all of the time and effort that I've been down there has been out of my own pocket. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just giving you the realities of it. Everybody that's gone down there, they've done it on their own dime. So I knew that for this to be sustainable, we had to do, we had to introduce Bitcoin into the economy through Bitcoin mining. So a big part of it for me was Bitcoin mining from the beginning and also what the similarities between Bitcoin Beach and what we're doing is education. So we wanted to teach the children at the school, at the previous school that we did the art camp, we wanted to um, teach children about Bitcoin. So the, the Bitcoin mining was a big part of it. And the Bitcoin mining was a big part of it for the reason that Bitcoin mining for the first time allows us to align economic interests 
for those who want a better economic outcome and those who want a better environment. And I know you've talked about this. You've had guests on your your podcast, one of your most recent guests. It was an excellent interview. But I think for me, that's the most important thing that you can communicate to your audience and that I want to communicate to the audience is that I've not been a progressive in ideology, but I think Bitcoin has allowed us to align ourselves in commitment to the environment because of what Bitcoin can do for the environment. And so one of the problems with the lake, Mark, is that it's a beautiful, beautiful lake. It, it hits, it, you know, on the list of most beautiful lakes in the world, it, it's consistently in the top 10. But there, there are a lot of unsustainable farming practices around the lake. Uh, there's poor waste management, poor uh, wastewater management around the lake. And the, the best way I like to describe Lake Atitlan is like what Lake Tahoe was in the early um, or in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was old enough to remember that uh, Lake Tahoe was dying. And uh, Atitlan is the same way. They've, they've had large algae blooms. And when there are large algae blooms, the tourists don't come. And I know in Pana, where, where we are, have based our operations, Pana receives about 300, US, 300 million U.S. dollars a year in tourism. And when there's no tourism, then that income drops. And obviously, during the COVID pandemic, there weren't a lot of tourists. So one of the reasons that it's a challenging area is people come in and they want to clean the lake. One of the most recent projects included an outside group of rich Guatemalans that effectively wanted to do a large piping system around the lake, similar to what has been installed around Tahoe, which I learned about, learned about later. They want to do, have a centralized waste collection system of all the wastewater, pump that out of the uh, river basin over the mountains and, and fertilize the land of the, the farms and the agriculture area down along the coast. And lo and behold, all of that land is owned by rich Guatemalans. So they came in and essentially tried to exploit the, the um, indigenous people. They were coming in saying that this was good for the community. And, but one of the organizations that actually is trying to promote cleaning the lake was being subterfuged and, and manipulated by um, this campaign. And, and then they were manipulating the, the um, indigenous people. So it was a very bad situation. And one group was going to benefit over the other. And I think for us, what we're doing, the Bitcoin mining will allow us to clean the lake and give back to the people that are there, a natural resource that is there. And the way I like to describe it is, you know, three to 400 years ago, the Spanish came in, took gold from the region, conquered the land and shipped it all back to Spain. And if we think about Bitcoin as digital gold, then I don't want the same thing to happen. I, I want the digital gold, the Bitcoin to stay within the community so that the community and the, the indigenous people can benefit from it and elevate their lifestyle and um, have economic opportunity that they've never had. Um, and that's one aspect to it. And then obviously, based on the experience in Bitcoin Beach with the unbanked, 75% of Guatemala or Salvadorans are unbanked. It's about 60 to 65% of uh, Guatemalans probably a little bit higher in the area that we're in because it's it's more rural. And so we want to provide economic opportunity and the and the ability to create generational wealth that's just never been available in that area. So that's that's kind of the plan. That's that's kind of the big plan. And it sounds like the reception has been pretty good thus far. Is that true? It has. Uh, remarkably, we started our educational program. It's been very good. Nancy Sifuentes is a trusted partner in the community, so she connected us with the mayor. The mayor's been very open to us being there, and we weren't really seeking his, his approval for anything. We just wanted to basically make him aware of what we're doing in the community for the benefit of the community. And there's really not been any roadblocks to what we're doing. I mean, we get the typical you know, dismissal of Bitcoin when we're trying to introduce people to Bitcoin, but we don't have any, you know, community barring or, or um, thwarting of our effort. They, they seem to be generally pretty, pretty um, accepting of what we're doing. And it, it's just, it's been really great. Yeah. Have you found that your skills as a, an evangelist in prior mission trips has helped you uh, pitch Bitcoin? That's a funny question. 
Yes, because I, I really don't view it, you know, and, and I've written two books, uh, one called The Christian Case for Bitcoin and the other called The Philosophy of Bitcoin and Religion. Um, it's funny. I really don't think that Bitcoin evangelism is any different than Christian evangelism. It's the same thing. I mean, you're you're trying to introduce new concepts, the, the, the concept of immutability. It's just it's very, very similar. Absolutely. So I'm eager to get into some of your more recent uh, advances here with uh, using Bitcoin to uh, with the waste um, water management and the methane that's emitted uh, mm -hmm. for some of those. Tell us about uh, what's going on in that end of things. Yeah, this is the really remarkable thing. So, again, as I started this podcast, I, you know, no one would ever label me as a progressive, but always concerned about the environment. I mean, it's it's uh, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to be good stewards and that's a, a major concern for me. So when you when you travel to a developing country, you you see the the poor management and it's not because the people are managing poorly. It's because there's corruption and they, they just lack the resources. So my first plan of attack was to use solar and create this, this Bitcoin mining infrastructure and then build out a, a stable electrical grid with solar. I was on a, on a Twitter spaces kind of describing this and um, Ricardo Carmona uh, reached out to me afterwards and said, Patrick, I think you really need to, to think about bio mining. And I, I didn't even know what that was. So he described what that was, and he said, you should probably go and investigate the, um, the wastewater treatment facility in, in the city. And so on my first um, trip to kind of jumpstart the program, um, I visited the wastewater treatment facility in Pana Chel. And Pana, for those who don't know, it's a community of about nearly 18,000 people. And they have a wastewater treatment facility. And I'd never been in a wastewater treatment facility in my life. Um, so when I went in there, I saw how everything was laid out. Well, they have a giant 300 square meter biodigester and, and a biodigester for who th those who don't know, takes solid organic material and through a process of just natural decomposition, it breaks down into two gases, methane and CO2. Well, we all know about CO2. We know the dangers that it, that is to the, to the environment. Well, m most of us don't, know about methane, I think we're, it's becoming more, you know, we're, we're learning more about it in the last couple of months and, and couple of years, but methane is almost 30 times more harmful to the environment than CO2. Well, this giant methane, this giant biodigester was leaking because of the inability to repair it. It was leaking methane and CO2. Normally in a, in a biodigester, you would want to flare that gas and flaring the methane would create CO2 in water, which is much better than just methane. So we thought, well, okay, um, we've identified a problem. We have the expertise to come in there, capture that methane, burn it so that we can turn a generator, create energy and mine Bitcoin. So we would create it basically an economic incentive for someone to come in there and fix the, fix the problem. And they've known about this problem for four or five years. In fact, about four years ago, they had a someone from one of the universities in Guatemala come and take a look at this. And they were thinking about trying to repair this and, and flare it for energy generation to put back into the plant to, to, to run the, the uh, water pumps that, that pump the water. But no one ever came back. So they, they did all this work. They did a cost analysis. But... The, the plant manager never heard back from the university because obviously there was money involved and what's, you know, if there's no return on investment, who's going to put a lot of effort into that? So Bitcoin provided the economic incentive for someone to actually come in there and do something about it. So we looked at that and then I thought, well, okay, there's the wastewater treatment facility. What about the solid waste treatment facility? So I went to look at the waste treatment, the solid waste treatment facility, which sits about 800 feet above Ponahachel. And it was just as bad. I mean, you, you have basically open pits with the inorganic waste. You had um, more structure where the organic waste was post, supposed to go through stages of decomposition under a, a desiccated environment to create compost. But because the roofing was dilapidated, about a third of it was, ex, uh, two thirds of it was exposed to the sunlight and rain. 
So you basically just had this organic decomposing mass that when it rained, it just kind of trickled down into the watershed and, and ultimately down in the lake. So it's just, it's just a terrible situation. And then on that trip, I also went across the lake to a larger city, one of the largest cities on the lake. And I went, we, we were there and I was going to go to a coffee place and see how they process coffee and all that. And we were up in this really nice um, coffee cafe that was kind of in a treehouse setting. It was really magical. But I was sitting there drinking my coffee and I was smelling this putrid, sweet odor. And I, it was really off-putting. And I asked the barista behind me, I said, where's that odor coming from? And they said, well, that's the coffee processing uh, facility next to us. They don't process their coffee in a sustainable way. They just take all the, the husk from the coffee beans and they, they put them in a giant pile and it just sits there and rots. And so as I was listening to that, I was thinking, well, um, that's methane escaping and that's, that's organic material that if that coffee processing facility knew that they could make money from that, they, they would probably putting that into a biodigester and turn in a generator. So there, there are, those are two example, three examples in a, in a lake that covers several hundred square miles. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities around the lake to provide economic opportunity so that all that material is not draining down in the lake. So that's the, that's the ultimate plan. And we're super excited about on this last trip, we identified a landowner that wants to participate in this. We want to bring in some waste to energy technology, proprietary waste to energy technology, and actually start on scale in scale, um, taking all of the waste. We can literally dig up the old landfill put it into this technology, mine Bitcoin, and on the other side, create a CO2 um, uh, sequestering material that we can sell for carbon credits because it's, it's capturing um, CO2 and there's no emissions from this entire process. So we're super excited about it um, for sure. Say that again. Um, <laughs> was this... You alluded to something uh, in your most recent article about a holy grail. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're getting at here? No, the holy grail is essentially free energy. And we we also have access to another proprietary technology that essentially we can take standing water and create energy from it. And that that's the holy grail of Bitcoin mining because, you know, in order for Bitcoin mining to be profitable here in the U.S., most Bitcoin miners are looking for sub four cent per kilowatt hour of energy. And based on our projections, we're going to be able to get um, this energy for less than two cents, uh, probably about one cent per kilowatt hour. And I've run across these technologies because of my just ability to network people and they were unaware of the Bitcoin opportunity. They were trying to, to be energy generators and, and sell this into the grid. And when I found out about it, I, I said, no, I think the market you want to try to address is the Bitcoin mining market. You're going to have an immediate demand that you're not going to be able to fill. So we've been able to secure rights to these technologies. And it's, it's just super exciting to bring it down to a community that is just going to flourish um, over the next couple of years because of what we're going to bring to the community. It's really exciting. All right. I guess there's going to be an episode too. <laughs> um, it's always annoying when things are proprietary and can't be discussed at this well, time. So. Agreed. But um, <laughs> because Bitcoin by nature is open source, the... Um, I'm teasing. It's Yeah, I know. I know. But I, I understand what you're saying, but it's exciting. Here, here's what's exciting about it, Mark, is the first world always has first dibs, right? Right, right. Well, because of what we've identified and, and the relationships that we have, we're going to have the third world have first dibs. And for me, that's just tremendously exciting. The person or persons developing this were good with that, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. That's pretty uh, remarkable. Well, because... We brought a skill set in the team that we have at, at, you know, this is not just me. We've got, a, we've got about six or seven people um, that span the Americas that are involved in this. And we just bring a skill set that they don't have and would never have access to. So 
I've started two companies on my own. And I can tell you that the hardest thing to do is start a company on your own by yourself. And if you could bring a skill set uh, to bear, um, it just it's it's the network effect. And that's what we bring. We bring a network effect into an emerging technology that, you know, Bitcoin mining is going to create a, an energy renaissance. And we're we're on the cutting edge, the knife edge of, the, of that. And it's it's just super exciting. So you've been doing this for probably eight months now. Is that sound about right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What mistakes have you made? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, I think probably, probably ascribing too much importance to some little nuances that occur. You know, you want everything to be perfect. Um, and that's the perfectionist in me, the surgeon in me. And spending too much of my energy on taking care of things that in the end just don't really matter. But, you know, I, 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 I would say at this point, pretty blessed that, you know, we've not made any major errors at this point because I didn't go in as the gringo wanting to change Guatemala. We developed those relationships. We had those relationships, those trusted relationships. And I'm not the expert in Guatemala. The Guatemalans are experts in Guatemala. So um, all I'm doing is bringing the resources. And I think with that attitude, it, it, it has minimized our mistakes. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. So looking forward now, what does success look like for you for this project? Well, I think for me, you know, because I am competitive, I really want to compete with El Salvador next door. And, you know, all the attention is focused on El Salvador. But if you look at Guatemala as a country, the economic resources they have, there, there's just so much opportunity in Guatemala. So what's this look for like for me? I would like to see Guatemala be the center of economic development for Bitcoin and certainly Bitcoin mining. And that's a tall order. But I think that one of the things that we've got going for us is Guatemala will never be in El Salvador in the fact that there, there will never be a Bukele in, El Sal- in Guatemala. I, the Guatemalan government is so corrupt and corruption is just pervasive within Guatemala. I just don't think that a Bukele would ever make it into the presidential um, leadership in Guatemala. So I think that what we have to focus on now is really, and, and the Guatemalans uh, agree with me and, and they've said as much, my Guatemalan partners, that this really has to be from the ground up. We can't see, El Salvador's done a great job and, and our, I don't think any of us, we wouldn't even be having this discussion if it wasn't for El Salvador. But I think if there was a mistake made and what is hampering El Salvador right now is the fact that it was a top-down approach. And so you kind of have to hurry up and educate everybody on the backside. And I think what we're trying to do is when we start promoting Bitcoin within Guatemala, that it's a ground-up approach. And we've got some kind of neat things that we're trying to work on right now that will, will foster that. So for us, success is that Guatemala adopts Bitcoin but from the ground up, and that will provide a, a more firm stronghold uh, for Bitcoin in Central America. How can my listeners and the broader Bitcoin community help make this happen? Well, I, I'm always hesitant to ask for donations. Uh, we're doing okay, but if, if you guys want to donate, you can just um, go to bitcoinlake.io, and we have donation um, links at the bottom of the page. You can follow me on Twitter. The Bitcoin Lake Twitter account is lake at Lake Bitcoin. So um, Lago is is lake in in um, Spanish. So in country, we're called Lago Bitcoin. So remember, we're Lake Bitcoin on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter. What we really need also is people to come down and be a part of what we're doing. We have a couple now that's there. They're from Switzerland by way of Columbia, and they're just doing a great job of teaching the kids. And uh, Mel, one of the females down there, she's teaching uh, English uh, to the children. So if you know Bitcoin and if all you know is English, we need people to come down and just teach English. And so that would be great for what we're doing. And yeah, just connect with us and just have people come down and spend Bitcoin. 
the, the other really cool thing about it, Mark, is you can, we can arrange for you to come from Guatemala City from the airport, pay in Bitcoin. And once you get into Panachel, you can essentially live for your entire time on Bitcoin. You can come and stay in a Bitcoin hotel. You can go to a restaurant, bar. You can do sightseeing. You can get across the lake on Bitcoin. Uh, you can take a tuk-tuk and pay in Bitcoin. So we, we really have created a Bitcoin experience. And if that's all you want to spend, um, we, we have provided it in a very short amount of time. So we'd love to have more people come down and sign our Bitcoin, Bitcoin wall at the school. That's amazing. I love it. And you said you needed nodes. Is that correct? I was asking for those initially. We have one node. We, we basically are running a full node down at the school and we are running, uh, we were running two miners. We're running one right now at the municipality. And we're trying to get the second miner up at the wastewater treatment facility. But I think from a hardware perspective, we're, we're all set. Uh, we also did brought a bunch of seed signers down with us. And we're trying to teach the children how to assemble those. And I think on my next trip, um, I want to bring buy some 3D printers because we want to start printing cases for the, for the, for the uh, seed signers. So we're just trying to introduce technology for these children um, that they would never have exposure to. And I think the other important thing, I know this is kind of not exactly what you're asking, but the other important thing for us in our education, Mark, is that because El Salvador is the center of Bitcoin right now, there's a, there's a significant need for Spanish-speaking Bitcoiners. And it's my hope that with what we're doing at the school, we're teaching Spanish speakers about Bitcoin. So whether they stay in Guatemala or go to El Salvador, um, we're, we're, we're training um, Spanish-speaking Bitcoiners there in the school. And it's, it's, it's really kind of exciting. It's very cool. Any final thoughts, Patrick? No, I'm sorry, Mark. I, I just kind of talked off the chain here. So I, I appreciate that. And Don't just, apologize. This has been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I would love those who are progressive, if you want to use that label, those who are really interested in the environment to come and see what we're doing in Pana and to be a part of this. It's, it's really remarkable. And I would love to take that passion that I know a lot of progressives have about the environment and use that in Pana HL. I think that would be a, a great asset to what we're doing down there. And then my last question, it is, what gives you hope, Patrick? Well, uh, Mark, I'm a believer. So Christ gives me hope. Uh, Bitcoin also gives me hope, but uh, Christ is my ultimate hope. Wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. The work that you're doing is amazing. It's inspiring. Thanks again for, for sharing your, your medical journey. That uh, has helped me just even in this brief time uh, together, always hearing that from a, a fellow colleague. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I want to pass it across again, and I want to come down to Guatemala. I'd love to have you. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner to buy solar cells that will power the projects that inspire you. You'll earn monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years from the clean energy your solar cells generate. And the organizations you power gain access to affordable, reliable, clean energy. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. Progressive Bitcoiner listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase. So get started at sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.